Hey everyone, this is Chris, and you're listening to One Cross Radio. And if you couldn't tell by that uh, different intro, uh, today's episode is going to be a little bit different than normal. And I didn't think that uh, my normal uh, cheery, uh, cheery theme was uh, was fitting for the uh, for the topic. Um, and in case you didn't read the title or see the thumbnail art, uh, today we are talking about the sinking of the uh of the rms titanic um that sound at the beginning was actually a simulated distress signal from the titanic in morse code um and it is supposed to read sos sos cqd cqd we are sinking fast fa uh, passengers being put into boats um why i'm doing an episode on titanic I'll be honest, I'm not a thousand percent sure. It's aside from I've always been fascinated by uh fascinated by the Titanic. Um and I've done an episode about the movie with Mike because the movie is utterly fantastic. Um but there are some discrepancies from uh from real life uh as natural uh, as naturally as there are in any adaptations um but it's something that i've always been interested in um and fascinated by it's it's one of those disasters that you can't say is a natural disaster um but it's also like not it's a non-intentional man-made disaster um so let's kind of jump to it um if hearing about death is something that uh something that bothers you or uh is is an issue i would advise skipping this episode as we are talking about a disaster where um over a thousand people uh perished um so i want to put that disclaimer up there we're looking at something dark uh today uh, something fascinating, but serious and, and tragic. Um, so if that's something that is going to be upsetting to you or negatively impact you as much as you might enjoy the show, I love you. I don't want to cause a bad day for you. So if that's if that can be upsetting for you, I, I'd encourage you to hop off here because uh, we're we're going to get into it. Um, so a little bit of background um, on on the, the sinking of the Titanic. I'm going to be throwing some numbers at you. Uh, at first, it's the c total capacity um, of uh, of people on board. So the total was it's been approximated because, I mean, it's been over a hundred, like over a hundred years at this point. Um, the consensus seems to be either three thousand three hundred and twenty seven or three thousand five hundred and forty seven uh, to other sort according to other sources uh, reported numbers um, specifically, though, seem to be um, two thousand four hundred and thirty five passengers and eight hundred and ninety two crew members. Of that, um, of that amount, um, the 3327 or 3547, a total of 1,503 people uh, did tragically pass away, uh, 815 of whom were passengers and 688 of whom were crew. 63% uh, of all passengers uh, perished, 39% 
of the first class passengers perished. Uh, 58% of the second class passengers perished and a whopping 76% of third class passengers um, perished with the sinking of the ship. Um, 685, um, nope, sorry, 688 crew pa um, crew members perished. Um, and yeah, sorry, I thought I had a different percentage, but it, it read the same thing. I actually have notes for this one because I'm like, no, this is serious and I want it. <laughs> this is, I was saying to Jill, this isn't an off the cuff one. Um, so to give a little bit of background on this, further background on the sinking, um, what caused it? The common knowledge is they hit an iceberg. Um, Per the British inquiry, and I'm going to be referring to the British inquiry a fair bit here, um, the loss of the ship was due to the collision with an iceberg brought about by the excessive speed at which the ship was being navigated. Despite ice warnings, the ship was going at 22 knots, which is just two knots shy of its maximum speed of 24. Titanic's high speed in waters, where ice had been reported, was later criticized by many as reckless. Um, but it reflected standard maritime practice at the time. Uh, according to 5th Officer Harold Lowe, the custom at the time was to go ahead and depend on the lookouts in the crow's nest and watch on the bridge to pick up the ice in time to avoid hitting it. Um, North Atlantic uh, liners at the time prioritized timekeeping above all other considerations, sticking rigidly to a schedule that would guarantee arrival at an advertised time. This will come into play later in a little bit of a myth I'm going to try to shoot down. Um, they were frequently driven at close to their full speed, and they treated hazard warnings as advisories, not as something like, hey, you need to do this, like, hey, you might want to do this. Uh, they were looking at it as a guideline instead of a rule. Um, it was also widely believed that ice posed very little risk. Uh, close calls were not uncommon, and even head-on collisions had not been disastrous. Uh, for example, in 1907, the SS Kronprinz Wilhelm, a German liner, had rammed an iceberg and suffered a crushed bow, but it was still able to complete her voyage. Um, so that would inform the attitude of it not slowing down, which hugely contributed to the sinking. Other factors were um, the crew really wasn't prepared uh, for emergencies, as well as um, attitudes towards lifeboats at the time. Uh, so there were emergency drills canceled throughout the voyage that would have gone over um, how to safely load and disembark the lifeboats, uh, how many people could be on the lifeboats, um, and clear instructions for evacuation protocol. Um, this led to a lot of confusion during the disaster. Um, and impacted it impacted it greatly. Uh, but we're going to get more on that as we get into it. So now we're going to dive into the timeline. So the Titanic had set sail. I'm not doing it from the start of it, but I'm going from April 14th into the 15th, uh, the day slash night of the collision until the sinking. Um, so 9 a.m. on April the 14th, 1912, um, 
they received their first ice warning from the Coronia. Um, now we're jumping <laughs> 13 and a half hours later. Uh, so between 1130 and 11.39. Uh, there's a description on the conditions, um, the sea conditions from the um, from a survivor, Colonel Archibald Gracie. Um, he he wrote that uh, the sea was like glass, so smooth that the stars were clearly reflected. Um, although the air was clear, there was no moon, and with the sea so calm, there was nothing to give away the position of nearby icebergs. Had the sea been rougher, waves breaking against the icebergs would have made them more visible. Um, also, there had been a, uh, an unfortunate mix-up before the ship left dock, where the people in the crow's nest who were keeping a lookout didn't have binoculars. Now, it's also been stated due to the conditions and the time that this happened that the binoculars wouldn't really have helped uh, helped much. So they were they were up a creek uh, with this uh, with this happening um, at eleven thirty nine. Um, Although the air was clear, sorry, I read that part. Uh, <laughs> um, so that was between 1130 and 1139. Uh, and then you, they get the call, iceberg right ahead. So 1140, uh, there was the collision with the iceberg. Uh, Officer Murdoch attempted to maneuver uh, around the iceberg, but the ship collided with the iceberg and had a glancing blow. An underwater spur, uh, an underwater part of the iceberg scraped along the starboard side of the ship for roughly seven seconds. Up top, um, chunks of ice dislodged and fell onto the ship's forward decks. The iceberg scraping buckled, uh, buckled the plating, popped rivets, and caused an opening in the hull, let, uh, in the hull letting water in. Now, there's been a dispute by experts about the size. Um, some uh, some argue that it was roughly 12 square feet, um, but others, uh, others have argued, and there's evidence for both, and I'm not an expert, so I'm just going to say what actual experts say, uh, and I'm going to report both. Um, others saying, like, this wasn't like one big spot or a couple smaller spots, uh, this was one wide gash about 300 feet in length and 10 feet above the keel. Um, while the ship could reportedly stay afloat, um, if four out of its 16 watertight compartments were breached, the impact had affected five compartments and the ship was done. Um, I think of that excellent scene in... The film Titanic, where it's right before the DVD break, um, we got to pop in the second disc um, where it's like she'll go back and back and back. There's no stopping it. Um, and it's true. So. Moving on at 1145 p.m., all engines are stopped and the ship slowly drifts south and crew, including um engineer um the engineers and thomas um andrews um who helped build the ship uh start the investigation to determine what the damage is and what they're looking at um 
At 12.15 a.m., the stewards begin ordering passengers to put on the life belts and jackets. And this was an uphill battle. Uh, everybody was looking at it at an inconvenience. Uh, they believed that this ship that was absolute luxury and been touted as like a pinnacle of engineering. Um, and it was later uh, described, people were saying like, oh, it had been described as unsinkable. That quote was never actually true. They had thought it, there was the prevailing attitude that it is practically unsinkable. Um, attitudes at the time felt engineering had gotten ships beyond the point where they could be sunk um, by natural elements, but it wasn't ever described as like fully as unsinkable. Um, and as this time, they're also assessing things, figuring things out. Um, so the passengers are like, what? No, we don't really need to do this. Come on. Why have we stopped? Like the ship will be fine. Now we're going to talk about the lifeboat situation because in the timeline, the lifeboats are, are popping up in a second. Um, so, the lifeboat situation. Uh, I want to specifically explain it. So, the Titanic had a total of 20 lifeboats, com uh, compromising of 16 wooden boats, and with eight on either side of the ship, and four collapsible boats, that also, which had wooden bottoms and canvas sides. Um, on average, the lifeboats could hold up to 60, uh, roughly 65 to 68 people each, and collectively, they could accommodate 1,178 people, which is about barely half of the number of people on board, and a third of a number... Um, that the ship was licensed to carry. The ships were licensed to carry more lifeboats. Um, but at the time, they were licensed, but they were not required to have enough lifeboats to cover every single occupant on the ship. Uh, part of that was the, uh, the prevailing attitudes. Like, nah, the ships aren't going to sink. Like, nah, we're good. Uh, hubris, but there were attitudes at the time informing it. The track records at the time were informing this hubris. Was it wrong? Absolutely. But if you read about it and you don't look at it in hindsight, you can kind of understand how they got there. The also, also, the way we look at lifeboats now is very different to how we look at lifeboats then. Because the attitude at the time as well was that in an emergency, the lifeboats were intended to be used to transfer passengers off the distress ship to a nearby vessel. It wasn't uh, like, hey, everybody get in a boat and sit here and wait for rescue. That happened after Titanic. Titanic, unfortunately, changed in a good way the attitude towards lifeboats. It's just terrible that that had to happen for that attitude to change. Um it was commonplace for liners to have far fewer lifeboats than needed to accommodate all their passengers and their crew. And of the 39 British liners at the time that were over uh, 10,000 feet, um, 33 had too few lifeboats in place to accommodate everybody on board. So it wasn't a titanic white star line only issue was the prevailing attitude of 1912 and the years before it wouldn't be until later that year 
unfortunately, a couple days later, a couple months later, that they would change that. So that informs that. So at 12.20 a.m., lifeboats are beginning to be loaded. Now, this is where we touch on some of the confusion that I was uh, talking about earlier. Um, so there was confusion in how many people could be safely put in the boats. Some were lowered um, with like 12 people, uh, two of the earliest boats, um, two of the earliest boats left with 28. Um, so there was also further confusion that led to how many people were in the boats over the women and children first rule. Um, there was a discrepancy on how it was understood. On one side, you had Murdoch, who understood it as women and children first. Um, and then on the other side, you uh, Officer Light Roller, Light Toller, had interpreted it as women and children only. Uh, he would, because of that misunderstanding, he would lower boats with empty seats if there were no women and children waiting. Um, while... Murdoch would allow a limited number of men to board if all the nearby women and children had embarked. Um, they also, because they didn't know uh, how many could be safely carried in the boats, especially as they were lowered, they both erred on the side of caution by not filling them to capacity. They could have been lowered quite safely with their full complement of 65 to 68 people, especially with the favorable sea conditions, because uh, it was a very calm night. Um, had this been done, an additional 500 people could have been saved. But instead, because of the lack of understanding, the lack of proper training, um, and lack of clear communication beforehand, hundreds of people, uh, hundreds of additional people, predominantly men, were left on board as lifeboats were launched with many vacant seats. 1245, and this is the morning of April 15th, wireless calls for assistance, uh, first transmission using CQD is sent out. Transmission altered to the new code S... Uh, sorry, not first transmission using CQD. The first transmissions were using CQD. Then it was altered to feature the new SOS, and it was the first time a passenger liner had used this code. Um, Lifeboat 7 uh, was ushered away um, at this point with, um, with 28 passengers. Um, at 12.55, Lifeboat 6 was sent away from the other side, also with only 28 passengers. This one including the unsinkable Molly Brown, uh, who had survived an accident on the Titanic's sister ship Olympic, um, where it was struck by another boat but made it back, no injuries and no fatalities. Um, but then she also was on the, the sister ship the Britannic, which did sink, um, but she survived that as well. Unfortunately, with injuries, but she she did survive and then earned this name. Um, Molly also um, encouraged the crew to go back. Now, there was an issue with the crew as well, um, <laughs> because, sorry, uh, yeah, the, there were crewmen, not enough crewmen were uh, were out and about. Uh, some had been sent down to help other people, so some of the crew that could have manned the boats, um, they were also locked in the, the ship as she was sinking. So you had less experienced crew up there. Um, you had... 
people panicking. Um, it it wasn't a good show. Uh, Molly's Molly's uh, whose real name is Margaret. <laughs> Molly's uh, pushing for them to go back, and in the movie, you can think of uh, Kathy Bates saying, "Come on, there's plenty of room," and the person shooting her down. Might be slightly fictitious, but that is what happened. She pushed and they didn't go back. Um, all right. So then we're jumping forward uh, to 1.20 a.m. At this point, water is seeping through uh, the floor and boiler room number four. Distress flares are firing and the true situation is and the true the true seriousness of the situation is now becoming very apparent to everyone um now i don't have a, a, a time for every single uh lifeboat so here are some uh, just some of the stats that were going on with the other lifeboats um the lifeboats were lowered every few minutes on each side of the ship uh but most of the Boats were greatly underfilled. Number five left with 41 aboard. Number three had 32. Number eight left with 39. Number one had left with just a capacity of 12. Um, the evacuation didn't go smoothly. Pass passengers suffered accidents and injuries as it progressed. One woman fell between lifeboat number 10 and the side of the ship but someone caught her by the ankle and hauled her back onto the promenade deck and then she made a successful attempt at boarding the lifeboat um first class passenger annie stingle had several ribs broken when a german american doctor and his brother jumped into lifeboat number five squashing her and knocking her unconscious uh, the lifeboat's descent was otherwise risky. Number six was nearly flooded by uh, flooded during the descent by water discharging from pumps out of the ship's side, but it successfully made away its way from the ship. Um, number three came also came close to disaster um, as one of the davits jammed, threatening to pitch the passengers out of the lifeboat and into the sea. 137. Uh, Titanic's watertight compartments beginning in the begin to fail, and the ship now begins to sink far faster than it had the preceding hour. Um, 137 seems to be the time where everybody's like, dang, it accelerated. Uh, 140 uh, is when... Uh, passenger john stewart entered the first class smoking room he saw thomas andrews staring at a painting of the plymouth harbor above the fireplace his life jacket um lying on a nearby table uh he asked aren't you going to try for it mr andrews andrews didn't reply and apparently didn't even hear the question and it seemed like he needed to gather his thoughts um you can of course think of the again excellent scene from titanic where rose and jack go through the first class lounge and then find mr andrews in there um 205 a.m the remaining leaving engineer engineers leave the room the boiler rooms as nothing can be done um nothing can be done to save the ship uh they had been fighting some had been dying uh just to keep the ship running this whole time as it was sinking just so it could have power so they could get people off the boats so they could send so they could shoot the rockets so they could send out the distress signals uh the engineer the engineering people are heroes um none of them 
None of them made it. None of them. At two ten, uh, the last transmission was uh, was sent. Uh, at two at two fifteen, um, things really started to uh, to go um, haywire with the ship. Um, as described, uh, this description is from the survivor Jack Thayer. Um, occasionally, there had been a muffled thud or dead an explosion within the ship. Now, without warning, she seemed to start forward, moving forward and into the water at an angle about of about fifteen degrees. This movement. Uh, with the water rushing up towards us, was accompanied by a rumbling roar mixed with more ruffled, muffled explosions. It was like standing under a steel railway bridge while an express train passes overhead, mingled with the noise of pressed of a pressed steel factory and a wholesale breakage of China. At 2.17 a.m., the propellers were now completely out of the water, and the stern was starting to rise at a steady pace. An increasing whor- roar... <laughs> that was a weird... Sorry. An increasing roar was heard. I was reading roar. I saw was and heard, and it came out as horror. My apologies. Breaking the tension <laughs> accidentally. Um, an increasing roar was heard by the lifeboats, uh, by those in the lifeboats, and it seemed as everything movable in the ship uh, broke loose and crashed forwards against the walls and bunkheads. Gradually, the ship began to give up bit by bit, imploding, um, cracking, the breaking. Uh, the first half going and then the second half slowly going at 2:20 a.m. Titanic floundered uh foundered and uh and sunk um and then at 4 a.m. the Carpathia arrives and begins boarding survivors um so we're going to get to some of the stuff uh, the uh, some of the final things in a second um I do want to quickly say though, uh, the there is the wreck of the Titanic, but especially over the past 20, 30 years, um, there have been more and more visits uh to to the wreck. Uh the wreck was already deteriorating, uh, but as more and more people have visited the wreck in submarines and the submarines actually touched down on the wreck, um it's speeding up deterioration. Uh, so the wreck is now rapidly deteriorating and uh, due to the many visits and other factors. I mean, it's it's been under in the deep sea for over 100 years. Um, experts are now estimating that the wreck could be completely eroded by as early as 2030, um, which is a shame. Anyways, uh, I also want to quickly address a few of the myths um, around the Titanic. Now, I'm not going to address um, all of them because that can and will be an episode of its own that I'm going to do down the line. But there are kind of two in particular that I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk about. Um, 
So one is about the fire. So there, it's a documented fact that a fire began in one of uh, Titanic's coal bunkers approximately 10 days prior to the ship's departure and continued to burn several days into the voyage. Now, fires occur, uh, occurred frequently on board steamships due to the spontaneous combustion of coal. Uh, the fires had been extinguished by fire hoses and by moving the coal on top uh, to another bunker and by removing the burning coal and feeding it into the ver the furnace. The event of the fire has led to led to some um, some experts and documentarians theorizing that the fire exasperated the effects um, caused by the iceberg collision and that the fire reduced structural integrity of the hull. Um, and a critical but a bulkhead, but a number, uh, an even larger number, and most experts have refuted this, and it was not by any inquiry found to be the um, a leading factor. There's been uh, numerous documentaries you can find on YouTube about like the real cause of Titanic sinking, and they they talk about the fire. Uh, what did the fire have an impact on the ship? Absolutely. Did it? Was it the cause of the sinking? No. Um, there are other myths of, uh, around that and conspiracies about the thinking of the ship, but like I said, there'll be an episode um, down the line uh, about further myths um, around Titanic. The one in particular, though, I wanted to uh, to address are many myths um, surrounding uh, Bruce Ismay. Now, Ismay... Um, J. Bruce Ismay, uh, he was, sorry, I'm just trying to find his title. At the time, he was an English businessman who served as the chairman and managing director of the White Star Line. Um, he was the highest ranking official on the Titanic, and he survived the, the sinking. Um, Ismay has almost always in the... In the portrayals afterwards, um, been uh, been demonized and vilified. Um, this was a, this was very much an American press thing. Um, Ismay had had issue uh, had had a falling out um, with. Uh, sorry, um, I'm just trying to find the name. I had just had it. Um, dang it! Yeah, give me a second. So Ismay had had um, a falling out with um, uh, American uh, news publicist uh, William, a businessman, news, uh, newspaper publicist, and politician named William Randolph Hearst. And then Hearst never forgot the falling out because Ismay was a very, very private man. Um, and Hearst uh, didn't like that. And I, I'll try to go in on that episode um, later. But basically, Hearst then used um, this as a, like the use this to uh, really um, like go in at him. Uh, it was it, it, it the journalism that was used to uh to go in at Ismay was described as yellow um, like not really based in um fact uh, instead using eye-catching headlines uh for increased sales something that is still happening today um 
So it really went out uh, like the American press really, really went out of their way to vilify, um, vilify Ismay, especially anything by um, William Hearst. Um, He was condemned in America and where the Hearst syndicated press uh, ran a vitrola campaign against him, labeling him, amongst other things, um, J. Brute Ismay. and then there was a one of the publications. It had an artistic rendering um, where it was a list of all those who died uh, in one column, but then in the column of those it saved, it only had one name, Ismay's, which isn't true, but it's a hit piece. Uh, and journalists do that. Media does that. Um, this led to a lot of depictions of Ismay going forward as selfish, as a coward, as a jerk. Um, in some depictions, he was even shown as a uh, as a Nazi, um, a corrupt businessman. Um in Cameron's film, he's also, of course, um, he's poorly depicted. The actor who played him and played him very well had also objected to his portrayal because there were scenes of Ismay's good deeds, which I'm about to get to. Um, but they were cut for for running time. And there's reports, although nothing nothing I uh, found with a quote, but enough that pointed to it where it's uh, the justification of cutting those scenes along with runtime is like, well, it's what people were expecting. Uh, in the 2012 miniseries Titanic, they dis- they depicted Ismay as a bigot uh, who orders a group of non-British crew members to be locked uh, below to drown. Um, the 1958 a Night to Remember, which is a fantastic version of the Titanic story, but still, uh, still not accurate. Um, it didn't just blame Ismay um, for the disaster, but it also depicted him in a cowardly, uh, cowardly light. Um, a depiction of the show Voyager on uh, the show Voyagers showed Ismay dressing uh, as a woman in order to sneak on to um, to a lifeboat. Um, this is contrary to what Axel actually went on with Bruce Ismay. Uh, There is no evidence whatsoever that he actually pressured uh, Captain Edward Smith to to maintain speeds or to set a record um, because as the liner's MO at the time, they were maintaining advertised, uh, advertised arrival times at all costs. There's no, there's no benefit whatsoever to being like, Hey, let's arrive early. There's no benefit to that. Nothing like no, no good benefit. Um, further, an experienced captain would not bend to an executive's whims easily. Um, further, that when they portray him as a coward in um, in boarding uh, with the the lifeboats, uh, Smith actively helped many women and children, potentially up to hundreds, board lifeboats before boarding one himself. Uh, he tossed. Uh, uh, 
he persuaded people. The dude was in his pajamas and slippers. He used his position as someone who is known to talk people who were nervous about leaving the luxury of the ship and the warmth of the ship. He talked them into getting on the lifeboats. The man saved lives, potentially hundreds of lives. Uh, as well, he was tossing things from the deck, chairs, luggage, anything that would float into the water to give people who were already in the water something to float on. Uh, and it was only when there were no other women and children around him and none in the area that he had boarded a lifeboat. Despite being villainized in the American media, he was found not guilty of anything in the British inquiry. The American inquiry was very much a hit piece on borderline everything. The British inquiry was fairly judgment-free. They were looking for a cause. They weren't looking for a story. They weren't looking for a hero and a villain. They weren't looking for that kind of thing. They were just looking for what happened. Um, so the British inquiry found him guilty of nothing. The official report noted that Ismay's work in rendering assistance to many passengers and didn't pass judgment on his decision to jump into the lifeboat. In fact, they're quoted as saying as, had he not jumped in, he would merely have added one or more life, uh, one more li life, namely his own, to the number of those lost. And there's an excellent article that the link is in the description from historicuk.com by James Pitt. And I'm going to use this direct quote uh, for our boy Ismay as we wrap up. It is a popular belief uh, that, hounded by the media and plagued with regret, that Ismay retreated into solitude and became a depressed recluse for the rest of his life. Although he was certainly harmed by the disaster, Ismay did not hide from reality. He donated a, a significant sum of uh, of his of his money to the pension fund for widows of the disaster. And instead of re avoiding responsibility by stepping down as chairman from the White Star Line, he helped pay out the multitude of insurance claims by the victim's relatives. And the years following the sinking, Ismay and the uh, insurance companies he was involved with paid out hundreds of thousands of pounds to the victims and relatives of the victims. I wanted to, I've always, as I've started to read more into Titanic over the years, I've always felt bad for Ismay. And as much as I enjoy the, the James Cameron film and the performance by, by the actor, Jonathan Price, um, I still feel bad, uh, for, for Bruce Ismay. He's been single-handedly vilified and portrayed as, like, the reason when, as we've looked at, there's there's many reasons. The prevailing attitudes at the time being, in my opinion, the, the, main, the main thing. Now, of course, experience had dictated those, but still, if, <laughs> if trainings had been done, 
if things weren't looked at as guidelines and were treated as rules. This could have been avoided. But when you look at the attitudes at the time, you can see how this, it was a recipe uh, for disaster, where if it wasn't the Titanic, it would have been something else. Um, and I've, I've just kind of always felt bad for Ismay. Uh, and his portrayal is still one of those things where it's become known fact. Like, no, he saved lives. Like, in my opinion, the dude is unquestionably a hero. Um for how he was reacting in the story and others, others weren't. Um, but misinformation spread and still stands to this day. It's, I have yet to see an accurate depiction of, of that man in any Titanic related media. And, and that's a shame. And to me, uh, with this may, it's a reminder of like, Hey, when people are vilifying, <laughs> Um, vilifying someone and it's accepted as common knowledge, it could be accurate. There, it very well could be accurate, but sometimes it's not, and it's worth looking into. Um, so I wanted to. That's that's where I'm going to end the episode. There will be a sequel episode of sorts down the line where I'm going to look at more myths around uh around the the Titanic. Um, uh. Captain Smith's behavior and his fate, near my god to thee, Officer uh, Murdoch's fate, because uh, these have been disputed. Uh, the dispute about the uh, Carpathia and its lack of involvement, um, as well as some of the conspiracy theories surrounding uh, surrounding the Titanic, um, like a bomb or a deliberate uh, switcheroo of ships that it wasn't actually the Titanic um, or the deliberate, uh, the deliberate sinking. Um, Titanic is a fascinating story. It's tragic, but there's a lot to learn from it. There's personal things to learn. There's things to, um, there's things we can see where a market improvement of societal stuff, i.e. what to do with lifeboats uh, after the fact, as well as, hey, even though there's <laughs> uh, clear-cut evidence of things, there's still springboarding of conspiracy theories, as well as, um, hey, uh, false depictions go a long way, even if facts disprove it. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I know it was a little more somber and different uh, than what we normally do, but it's it's something that I've always been interested in, and I do like doing episodes that aren't always light. Um, yeah, so I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let me know uh, the comments and your thoughts. Let me know if you'd be interested in me covering other disasters at um at some point. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope you uh, I hope you all have a wonderful day. Stay safe. Um, and again, if you want to check out more of my stuff, um, you can hit up the link tree that I'm uh, linking in the comments because that'll take you to uh, my other podcast. If you want more Chris, um, can, and my joke is why, but also thank you. Um, you can you can check out um, Radio Arcade that I do with my boy Christian, as well as my infrequent wrestling podcast, Power Bombs and Pile Drivers. If you like the show and you enjoy what I do at all. Um, please consider, uh, supporting me through Patreon. Uh, the link to Patreon is, um, is in, on the link tree as well. Uh, through there you get bonus episodes, shout outs, early access, uh, and a bunch. 
I hope you all have a wonderful day. Stay safe. Take care. And God bless, my friends. Peace.